Hi there, and welcome to the first in the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast series. Today, we're going to take a look at the effects of training errors and load management in particular, which is a bit of a buzz term around sport and around athletes, and we're going to try and help you understand it a whole lot better. So when we were thinking about a pre-Christmas topic, we had a lot of great topics on the list. We're trying to think of something that was relevant to this time of year. And as we approach Christmas, many of us are lucky enough to be taking a break or having a holiday, and that can extend across to our sport and our training as well. And in thinking about the problems that we do experience as physios at this time of year, what we tend to find is that one of the biggest problems we're presented with is rest in the athletes that we see after the break. So it's not uncommon at this time of year that people are told to go away and freshen up, take a good break, you've deserved it, and make sure you come back fresh in the pre-season or post-Christmas period and we'll start all over again. Now, unfortunately, taking a complete break or coming back completely fresh, whilst it sounds like a great idea at the time, it can lead into a number of issues when you come back to training if you don't come back with a good common sense approach to your training. But hopefully what we'll get through to you today anyway is that taking a complete break often isn't the best thing to do and you can come back and be mentally freshened and physically freshened without actually having a complete break at all. So we want to try and get a different attitude to people over your rest break um, and try and realise that actually being more actively involved in some form of training over your break is going to go a long way towards improving your performance. So when we look at this topic of load management, I'll try and think about where it fits in under the Perform, Prevent and Recover banner. And I suppose initially thinking about it, it could easily be thought of as a prevention topic because by making sure we load properly goes a long way towards preventing potential injuries. And I think this is probably where things have gone a little bit wrong with people's understanding of load management is that it's gone a little bit more along the prevention lines when what we really need to be doing is probably looking at performance more as a priority and I think when we're talking load management um, we're talking the effects or the potential negative effects of undertraining or overtraining then what we really need to be thinking about is performance and how can we perform at our best if we do detrain which we'll explain soon or undertrain um, it can be a big form of preventable injuries and so by going through this today we're going to try and help stop you from going through that dangerous detraining zone that can lead to injuries. So when we're looking at performance um, our priority should be on pushing for as high a performance as we possibly can and by focusing on high performance we then can take the injury risk strategies along the way. But if we take a sole approach on reduction of injury risk, then we're probably going to compromise our performance. So we're going to head into today's podcast with the priority being load management and how it can actually help us 
increase our performance as the priority and hopefully reduce injury along the way. So as I said, the whole basis of this talk is going to be around load management. Now, anyone who's been in sport for any period of time would have heard this term. It's been a real buzz term over recent years. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of osteitis pubis. And if anyone's been in football or soccer, particularly over the last five to ten years, you would have known that osteitis pubis came out and everyone was talking about it and it became almost the fashionable injury or condition to have and what we were doing as physios is we were tending to categorize anyone who had any groin or hip related issue into osteitis pubis and we were treating all of these injuries under the same umbrella and with a very similar regime and as the years went on and as technology and in particular scanning and research got better we started to realize that maybe we were over-categorizing all of these hip and groin issues and that osteitis pubis wasn't the whiz-bang universal condition that we once thought it was. And we then come back and, and osteitis pubis is certainly still around, but it's a, it's a small component of what is a complex area to treat, being the hip and the groin. And I think when we talk about load management, Everyone's talking about it now and we often see in the clinic and certainly in our sporting teams, we see a lot of people come to us with the attitude and and saying to us, well, I've been load managing and I'm not sure how I got into this situation where I'm injured, but I think unless you have a really good grasp of what load management is and how to do it well, then it may actually be that you're taking the load management strategies to your detriment. So people, when they think about load management, tend to take the negative element of it, which is actually reducing their load. So if you ask anyone in the clinic what they're doing to manage their loads, then generally what you do is you go on to a, or they go on to a spiel where they're talking about how they're taking sessions out or taking parts of sessions out or missing sessions and they might not be doing a training so that they can be fresh for game or competition day. So it's very much based around what they're not doing rather than what they are doing. And this is where a lot of the problem might be coming in because there's some pretty strong evidence these days that both under-training and over-training can increase injury risk. And when we talk about load management with our athletes, not too many of them are overtraining, but a fair proportion of them are undertraining. Still trying to do the right thing, still trying to load manage, but by managing their load, as I said, they're reducing it, and many of them are undertraining, and this exposes them to just as many and, and quite possibly more risk than overtraining. So when we do train, there's many positive adaptations that come from training hard. Not only does the body adapt, but we're building fitness and we're building resilience and we're actually reducing injury risk from making sure our body is used to functioning at high training loads. So today, to really understand load management we're going to need to understand some other critical terms. So there's going to be 
a few terms I want to get through to you today and hopefully explain in full. So we'll talk about detraining and undertraining. We'll then get on to the main topic of this podcast, which is load management. And to understand load management, we've also got to understand what's called acute chronic workload ratio. So this is another term that's crept into sport and physio for sure and sports science and it's being used a lot and there's some great key points we can take from acute chronic workload ratios again if we understand it well and then I'll also look at injury risk versus injury rate and how these two terms whilst they might sound familiar or similar sorry actually mean two different things so Let's start with the first term, which is detraining, and and look at detraining. And if we're going to get an understanding of detraining, then we first probably need to understand what training is and what we're trying to do when we're trained. So when we're trained, what we're really trying to do is get our tissues, which is our muscles, our tendons, ligaments, cartilage, bone. We're trying to get all these tissues to slowly adapt to more load, more stress, more speed, more distance, whatever the demand that you're putting on that particular part of your body. And obviously, depending on which sport you're participating in, you might have a different strategy or a different bias to what type of load that you're trying to get your body trained to adapt to. Uh, Because when we train, we adapt. So what's detraining? So Pretty simply, if we don't train, the tissues we mentioned above, muscles, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, bone, etc., they maladapt or they lose their ability to withstand the stress that's being placed on them. And really what the research shows us is that the speed of the detraining effect is frightening. And I know that anyone who's had an injury or maybe even a better way to look at this is when we see people go in for an operation and the operation might be minor and you might only have a few keyhole little incisions and you these days unless you're having something major you're not even in hospital overnight and you might not need crutches and you're up walking day one and you're back to footy by week two or three or four but what we do see if we're talking about a knee we see so much extensive wastage and what we call atrophy around the quads muscle, but certainly around the hamstring and the calf. And, and this happens literally within 24 hours of, of trauma and surgery and, and rest. So as I said, the, the speed of detraining or undertraining is frightening. And so this is where load management comes into things, because if we are trying to do the right thing, but we're actually not loading our tissues enough, then they're actually going to maladapt and not be able to take the stresses we want to put through them without increasing our injury risk. So if we look at detraining or undertraining, it can happen for a whole variety of reasons, some of them necessary, some of them not, some of them just down to poor understanding of load management. So so detraining sometimes comes with complete layoffs and, and absolute rest. So that's what most people would think of. Oh, I'm going to lose some conditioning and lose some fitness if I have a complete layoff. But that's not always the case because it also happens when we're just not able to train at the same level that we've been used to training over a period of time. 
So if you've been crook, you've had some sort of illness. Um, again, most of you that have been in sport for a period of time will have suffered an injury that's an, that's that's required you to pull back either completely or in part. Um, as we head into this Christmas period, we've also got holidays and breaks from work and a break from our usual training regime and training venue and training group. And so all of these things we term relative rest which is where people are taking a break but not necessarily taking a complete break um, but people don't realize as I said the dramatic effects of under training and, and detraining um, and the problem comes when we return back on the other side of the holidays or our break and we try and resume training at or very near to the level that we were training at prior to the rest. So that can put a lot of injury risk. It places stress on our body. Our tissues have maladapt. But the irony is we often feel so great after a break. If you've gone into the break with some niggles, they tend to be gone. If you've gone into the break a little bit flat and a little bit stressed and lacking motivation and tired and fatigued you come back from a break and your mind is fresh your body feels great your motivation has returned because you probably had a couple of sleep-ins and you haven't had to go to the gym and you haven't had to stretch and do the rest of it that comes with with the performance that you're normally trying to achieve and so we come back feeling fantastic and we've got a good memory of where we were at only a week or two or three ago and we feel primed to return back to that level that we were. And it was interesting because the Australian Institute of Sport produced a fantastic graph that really hits home how frighteningly fast the detraining effect is. And the AIS were able to look at at lack of training, or, or they actually looked at no training versus some training, and how long it actually took to return back to the same level of fitness that you were before before your break. So in a nutshell, what they found, and they looked at it across across six weeks of, of uh, phases ranging from complete rest through to people being able to do 20%, 40%, 60%, 80% of their previous workload, And what they found is that if someone was unable to train at all for a two-week time period, it took them 4.6 weeks to return to their previous training state. So including the two weeks of that initial complete rest, that's actually 6.6 weeks in total from stopping your training to regaining your full fitness. Now, again, that's a little scary. Two weeks off and an additional 4.6 weeks to get back to your full fitness level. But most of us, after two weeks off, aren't building our loads back up over 4.6 weeks. We're building them back up over a week and then wonder why we get niggly. In contrast to that, the AIS found that if you're able to maintain 80%, of your normal training loads over the same two-week period. So this may come from a variety of cross-training loads. It doesn't mean if you're a runner that 80% of your training necessarily needs to be running. 
And herein lies one of the difficulties, particularly when you're dealing with injury or a change of venue or environment, is actually finding an alternative that you can do that does keep your fitness levels ticking along. But anyway, uh, what the AIS found is that if you're able to maintain 80% of your normal training loads over the same two-week time period, then it's going to take you 0.4 of a week, so 2.4 weeks in total from your initial injury, to return to full fitness. So if we go back and have a look at that, the same two-week time period, person one does nothing for two weeks, And it takes them 6.6 weeks in total to get back to their full fitness levels. Whereas person two, who was able to maintain 80% of their normal training loads over that time period, it took them 2.4 weeks. So that's a difference of just over a month, which is really pretty amazing. So just by continuing to do some form of activity is going to uh, dramatically stop that detraining or deloading effect it's going to reduce your injury risk and it's going to keep your performance levels really quite high it's going to enable you to return post your break still feeling mentally and physically fresh but able to resume uh, in a far greater state of fitness that you otherwise would have so as physios we find it quite common that we're dealing with injuries where people are taking six weeks off sport. So people that have lower limb fractures or foot fractures, stress fractures, and they go into a boot. Uh, They might be in a cast, they might be on crutches, a whole range of reasons where six weeks is not, not enormously uncommon for people to have an injury. And what they tend to do is think, well, I'm in a boot, I can't do much, so I'll take six weeks off. And if we go back to this AIS study again, they found that it takes an additional 6.9 weeks after that six-week injury, so 12.9 weeks in total to return to full fitness. So again, in the clinic, what we find very commonly, people will be in a boot, let's say, for a foot stress fracture for six weeks. They'll come back champing at the bit, wanting to do as much as they can as soon as they can. And it's not many people, unless they're well-advised, that would take an additional 6.9 weeks to build back to a fitness level. What we'll often find is that the first week after removal of a boot or a splint or a brace or crutches, people will be pretty careful and they're happy to accept that they've got to build up their loads uh, systematically. By week two, they're generally feeling pretty good and they step them up quite a bit and then generally by week three they're trying to get right back into full fitness but but the IIS research is telling us that they really need closer to seven weeks so the moral of that story is is that if we're able to continue some form of training or conditioning during your rest and your injury period you're going to dramatically reduce the time it takes to return to your full fitness level along with greatly reducing your injury risk on the return. You just need to find something that you can do during your downtime that keeps your body ticking over, that keeps your fitness levels up and that keeps a little bit of good stress on your body so that your body keeps adapting to the load that we put on it. 
So the more we reduce the effects of detraining, the better, particularly after an injury or, or after a rest period. And we'll talk about a few studies during this podcast, and I'm happy to give people the references if, if they want to do any further reading. But there was a great study that came out that compared the effect of starting rehabilitation uh, in the case of this study, it was following acute thigh and calf injuries. So think of hamstring or quad or calf strains. And what this study found was that in, in people that were actually able to start their rehab two days after injury rather than nine days, there was a three-week reduction in return to sport time frame. So again, like the AIS studies, that's pretty significant because if we get somebody that has a hamstring muscle strain, then the classic thing is we may see them a week after the muscle strain because they've been too sore to come and present to physio and often they're worried that it's going to be the treatment's going to be too sore. So they'll wait a week and they'll book in and they get to us by day seven or day eight and what this study is telling us is that if only we could get to people by day two then we may be cutting as much as three weeks off injury and 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 that's quite amazing and in that first two days all we might be doing is just educating people on little things that they can be doing to keep their body tissues adapted to a safe form of load so let's take in the form of a hamstring strain often what our initial rehab is just getting people to walk once they can walk comfortably and do what we call some isometric or static or very low load contractions of the muscle within pain limits uh, rather than just waiting a week because within that week as we as we explained before with the knee and the quad within a week you can get some pretty significant muscle maladaptation um, and we can have a dramatic effect on that by seeing people really really early so I suppose the message from that is that total rest is rarely the right program particularly if you're injured there really shouldn't be more than a day or two where you have complete rest and, and that's where I suppose you rely on your physio or or sports science person or coach to be able to educate you on what you can do during this period because there's nearly always something that you can do to keep your body, muscle, tendon, ligament adapted to load. So where does the detraining fit into load management? Well, what we've got to look at, number one, is that if we, when we talk about detraining, we're, we're also talking about undertraining. They're very similar terms. And to understand undertraining, we need to have some good knowledge of load management. So if we go on to load management alone, um, what we'll say and what we're going to try and get across is that if you can just have a better understanding of what load management truly means then you are going to be improving your performance and increasing your injury risk by understanding load management you are not just reducing injury risk you should be looking at load management as a way of improving your performance and when people when we ask them about their load management understanding they're often surprised to find out that they're actually underloading 
and that this is the reason they've ended up on our treatment couches getting treatment. They've tried to be safe, they've tried to do the right thing, but in managing their loads, they've actually taken too much load off their body. So there's stacks of papers, studies, research out there since load management became such a part of our sporting mindset. In the initial short introduction, I promised people that one of our goals was to sort the nuggets from the junk. And when we talk load management, the nuggets come from a guy called Tim Gabbett. And I must credit literally everything that I'm going through in this podcast today, I will credit Tim Gabbett and his research for. So Tim has got over 20 years experience working as an applied sports scientist with athletes and coaches from a whole wide range of sports. So he's got a couple of PhDs um, with special reference to the physical demands and injury prevention and skill acquisition. And he's used this in his work with elite international athletes over a few Commonwealth Games, so 02 and 06. Uh, He's worked in Olympic Games, so 2000, 04 and 08. And he continues to work as a sports science and coaching consultant for a lot of high-performance teams around the world. And it's interesting because Tim alone has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and presented at over 200 national and international conferences. So when we talk about the junk and the nuggets, when you see a guy as credentialed and brilliant as Tim has published over 200 articles himself, then you can imagine how much stuff is out there and how hard it is to sort the junk from the nuggets. So Tim's stuff is all nuggets. And his work has been groundbreaking for us as physios and and also for other health professionals and, and sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches. And Tim has been fantastic in getting his information and research out there to us as health professionals. And now, as we're trying to do in this podcast, it's now our responsibility, I think, to pass all of this stuff on to you, the athlete, so that you can understand it better. It's hard enough for us to sit there and look through the papers and the research and, and try and come down to the to the good stuff let alone you as the athlete or person just trying to stay fit, trying to find out what's good and what's bad. But in a nutshell, I can say to you that if you grab anything of Tim's, then you will be onto an absolute nugget. Um, So if we can get you to have a good understanding of performance parameters and and performance and injury research, then then you are going to be going a long way towards achieving your your optimal performance levels and and minimal injury risk and we think it's important too and certainly as physios I think it is important for us to help you take ownership of your own performance Um, we just can't tell you what to do and expect you to do it and, and you just can't expect to go out there into the wide world of sports science and find articles and and research and take it on yourself it's it's a real team effort and and you as the athlete need to have an understanding of uh, what you're being told to do and why so that you can take some ownership in in the program that you're being told to do. So 
if we talk about the paper that probably changed, uh, well, let's say it was groundbreaking in the field of load management, it was by Tim Gabbett. And he produced a paper that was called The Training Injury Prevention Paradox. Should athletes be training harder and smarter? So at this stage, we'd found that the load concept had been taken to really think that overload or too much load caused injury. And so to control or reduce load must be better. So if we look at load management and we look at a definition of load management, well, pretty simply, what load is, is stress that is placed on our body. And this stress really can be broken into two main components. So firstly, we look at extrinsic load. Now, extrinsic load, think of it like this. This is the physical work that you actually do. So it might be the distance that you've run. It might be the speed that you've ran at. It might be the time that you've played sport for or the time that you've had a training session for. It could be the weight that you've lifted. It could be the laps that you've swum it could be the balls that you've bowled, it, it, it could be the balls that you've pitched. Depending on the sport, it is actually the physical workload that you put on your body. And these days, extrinsic load is delivered to us on a platter because there's so many measurables out there. So I think Garmin's probably the one that is most known to people. You can put a a watch or a device on and, and at the end of your training session you can get as much information as you want on on what extrinsic load that you've put on your body. So there's a classic easy way to measure extrinsic load. And we find too, you know, these days with GPS systems in in certain not just professional sport, but a lot more local sports are getting into GPS and these are also extrinsic measurables that, that we can upload and try and work out what, what extrinsic load we've put in our body. But the second important part of the stress we place on our body is what we call intrinsic load. And think of intrinsic load like this. It's your perception of effort or the physiological or psychological response that you have to exercise. And this is what makes load really different between two different people. So we can have two identical extrinsic loads. So we can have person A that's run 10 kilometers and we can have person B that has run next to them the same time, the same distance, the same course, the same day. So those two people, if we look at extrinsic load as just distance, then those two people have put identical extrinsic loads through their body. But this is where it's important that we don't just look at extrinsic load in isolation. So this is where the internal load measurement 
becomes really important. Um, it can be a little bit harder if we're going to go into depth in, in internal loading. And we find, again, most people might have come across different questionnaires that are used in sport these days. And questionnaires can be lengthy, lengthy, sometimes pages long. And a lot of these questionnaires are based more around the intrinsic load or, or how each individual person has responded to the training load that's being put through them and then these questionnaires have got to be individually collated in many cases and and placed back against the extrinsic load to come and uh, try and come up with a measurement of, of, of how much load has been placed through that person. But for most of us we don't have the time or the inclination or the expertise to go through all of these questionnaires and so there is a really great simple way that any of us can measure the intrinsic load and we'll go through in the next part why being able to measure intrinsic and extrinsic load is so important but there's a great way that we can look at intrinsic load simply and that is a, a term we call rate of perceived exertion. So what we ask people to do is at the end of a training session is rate on a scale of 1 to 10 the intensity of that training session with 10 being an absolute agonizing near to death can't do any more experience and 1 obviously meaning that you have barely raised a sweat and, and, and your heart rate's barely gone up and, and your body hasn't even warmed up. So if you can measure your training session on a scale of 1 to 10, you can then multiply that against your extrinsic load, so your distance, your time, your speed, your weight, etc. And you can come up with a training load measurement for that particular session. So that's in a simple way how anyone can actually measure the load placed on their body during their training session. Your extrinsic load, which is given to you most of the time in a measurable or on your watch, and your intrinsic load, which is your rate of perceived exertion for that session. But we'll come to that a little bit later and, and tie all of that into uh, performance and, and load management. Um, so we've looked at load, we've looked at definition of load, uh, but the term is load management. So if we if we look at the management side, I think this is possibly where the concept of load management got lost. Because when most people are managing, they tend to be reducing their load. And it was quite interesting and, and almost funny that when I did my first Google search uh, preparing for this podcast on definition of load management. Here's the first thing that came up at the top of my Google list when I put in load management definition. Here it is. Basically, you reduce the amount of training and or competition an athlete takes on to help them recover better and perform better over the long term. Now, isn't that interesting? So definition of load management, top of the list, basically you reduce the amount of training and or competition an athlete takes on. So here's the problem. When people think of management, 
they are often taking away from their load, not adding to it. Management doesn't need or doesn't mean reduction. If we look at a couple of studies on load, which are really interesting, there was a great study done on fast bowlers, and, and fast bowlers have a quite a high um, injury risk, particularly younger fast bowlers. But uh, one of the studies that looked at fast bowlers found that the bowlers that were doing more than 50 overs in a game, which is quite a bit, um, but any bowler that did greater than 50 overs in a game had an increased risk of injury for up to 28 days. Now, the take-home message from this study probably was, well, the load certainly, but um, what was found was that the increased risk of injury could be for up to 28 days after the actual spike in loads. Now, a lot of people will come into our clinic certainly and say, look, I've got this injury and what they're looking at and what we used to look at as practitioners too is, you know, one of our first questions was, well, what did you do in your run yesterday or the day before or whatever it was when your injury occurred? And, and you know, it often in the week or 10 days before their injury, there was nothing to outlier with what they did. So it was hard to work out why they were actually injured. But what the research is telling us is that if you spike your loads in sport, then it is quite possible that you will sustain an injury two or three or four weeks after that spike in load. But you may not necessarily correlate that spike in load with the injury because of the latent time between. So John Orchard, who's, who, like Tim Gabbard, has done a lot of great uh, research in the field of injuries, um, was the one that found that this, this three- to four-week delay between high workloads and increased risk of injury was, was definitely there. So as I said earlier, the 50-over the thing for those of you that play cricket seems a lot, but do you know what? Across a game, and particularly people that are playing, you know, two-day games, and and certainly the higher levels you go in cricket, we know that spikes in activity will occur. So if you and it happened actually recently in in one of the test matches with Australia, where you lose a bowler early, and all of a sudden your remaining two or three bowlers have to do a lot more load than was previously anticipated in the game. And if we look at AFL football and you look at uh, a player going down in the first five or ten minutes of a game and certainly if you're unlucky enough and you've got two players going down early in a game you've only got four interchange players and with the high number of rotation in AFL these days you will definitely have players that are spiking their load because of injuries to other players. So what we need to do when we're training in sport, be it that you're training individually or training as part of a team, spikes can occur and spikes will occur in your training at some stage. It will often be unexpected. And so what we need to make sure is that we make you resilient and robust enough that you actually can sustain a spike in load if and when it is going to happen. 
So if we stay on the fast bowler thing, just for one more example to, to look at, at loads, and this will work in with our acute chronic workload ratios when we come back to that later. There was another study done on, on fast bowlers which showed that that bowlers that bowled more deliveries in a week, and they came up with a number of 188 deliveries in a week. So bowlers that bowled more than 188 deliveries in a week with less recovery, so less than two days of recovery, had an increased risk compared to those that bowled between about 120 and 188 deliveries and had three to four days recovery. But what was interesting in this study is that they also found that bowlers that bowled less than 123 deliveries that had a longer recovery, so greater than five days, were also exposed to injury risk. So what this study highlighted was actually a sweet spot where between two certain figures, in this case 123 and 188 uh, cricket bowling deliveries, there was actually this sweet spot where injury risk was lower. But not only was it at high workloads that injury risk increased, but it was actually at low workloads that injury risk also increased. So this is where we're talking about the the detraining and the undertraining is that trying to maintain our fitness level somewhere in a sweet spot is is actually pretty important. Now, we don't want to always be in a sweet spot and and we'll come back to that, uh, but we need to realize that load management, there is just as much risk with undertraining as there is with with overtraining. Um, And the sweet spot's really important. And whilst it might sound feasible or reasonable to keep people in a sweet spot and, and reduce their injury risk, the problem with keeping someone in their sweet spot, there's a few things. Number one, you're never going to be able to perform at your optimal because within that sweet spot you are not placing your body under enough stress to get it to adapt enough so that you can perform at your optimal performance but by staying in the sweet spot you're also not making yourself resilient or robust or getting yourself to adapt to the inevitable spike that is going to happen. So when we look at training loads Let's use AFL as an example again. And for those of you that do follow the sport, um, but, but this, is, this is similar across any uh, rigorous team sport, is that you'll, towards the end of a successful season for any individual AFL player, you'll inevitably hear them say, it was great because I got a full pre-season in. And that's what helped me to perform so well during this season. Now, it's easy to think that, gosh, AFL these days goes from October or November through to September, if you're lucky enough to make finals. It's easy enough to think that with an 11-month season, that if a player misses a month or two and comes back late December or even 
mid to late Jan, you know, wouldn't they be fresh and wouldn't they be ready and raring to go? And towards the end of the season, won't they be less injury risk because they haven't been training for 11 months? Well, that's actually not the case. Um, And as I said, it's so, so common that the people that are having great seasons are the ones that got a full pre-season in and the ones that had the the missing parts of a pre-season are the ones that actually struggle to uh, get up to performance levels quick enough and, and actually maintain a lot of injury risk during that season. So the more training that's completed sensibly and the more training that somebody is able to do working towards high loads seems to be the way to build resilience and, and improve performance. Now, if we go back to Tim Gabbard again, and he uses a really fantastic analogy, which is a great way to think through load management and um, the different phases of fitness that we go through. So Tim uses a concept called the floor, the ceiling, and the basement. And what he says is that the floor is our current capacity or our current fitness level. So that's where we're functioning at the moment. The ceiling is the required capacity or the 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 performance aim, the peak condition that we are aiming to get to. And then he also talks about the basement, which is when you drop to extremely low levels. So this might be in the off-season, it might be during your rehab, it might be that you've gone on holiday and you haven't done much and you've dropped to very low levels of fitness and conditioning. So using this analogy, the problems can come when your floor, which is your current capacity, is inadequate to handle a return to training. Um, so again, we see this in in clients a lot. And, and again, I'll use the example of the footballer that battles through a tendon problem through the latter phase of the season. So let's say they might go through June, July, August with an Achilles tendon problem and they're functioning with great difficulty, but they tend to manage it through the season in a great deal of pain. Um, They compromise their training, but they get through the season and they stop at the end of August and they don't do anything, a lot of these local footballers, until December or Jan. So when they stop, they feel great. The tendon pain goes away. The problem is, as we've seen before, their fitness levels are going to go to the basement Um, they're going to come back to training day one feeling great. Their pain has gone, but their pain has only gone because they've put no stress or no challenge through their Achilles tendon. And that tendon, and we know tendons more than most other structures in the body, actually maladapt or decondition so quickly. But unless you put the stress through it, you're not going to feel it. So these players come back to training and they feel fantastic and they are amazed that within the first 500 metres or one kilometre of their first run after three months of no pain, their Achilles problem is back again. And this is because they haven't put any stress through that area the injured tissue has deconditioned and maladapted and it has been actually able to to withstand less load than it could towards the end of the season. Um, And so that's why it's so important that 
In this case, for example, that person had dropped to the basement. They'd completely let their floor go. They're coming back to pre-season and they're trying to go from the basement to the floor in one training session and it's all gone wrong. So we need to make sure that we keep our floor, which is our current capacity, at at least a minimum level during our off-season. Occasionally, you might have time to get from the basement to the floor, um, and occasionally you might have time to get from your floor to the ceiling using a gradual systematic program. But reality tells us that often time isn't there and we're in a little bit of hurry and we've got some time constraints and we need to get from our floor or our current capacity up to our ceiling or our required capacity in a in a time frame that means that we have to be training pretty hard. So it's important that we keep that distance between the floor and the ceiling as minimal as possible. Um, so, you know, it's important, I suppose, to say that maybe sometimes getting towards a basement could be important. You might be burnt out. You might have a significant injury. You might have a an overseas business trip where you just can't do any activity. But 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 you still have to try and maintain some sort of floor and not let yourself get into the basement. And keep in mind too is that if you do get yourself into the basement, that that almost any load that you put through your body is a spike. So if you're going to be spiking repetitively, you're going to be at risk of injury. So if we go back to the units of load that we spoke about earlier, where you're multiplying the extrinsic load by the intrinsic load, so you're coming up with an amount of load per session that you're uh, doing during training, we can use this simple little calculation to create a really useful ratio. And particularly once we get some data over time, we, we can come up with what we call the acute chronic workload ratio. So first of all, to get this ratio, what we've got to do is calculate our acute training load. So that's the training load that you've completed recently. So if you're an individual and you're not training very frequently, then it might just be one session that you're using as an acute training load and you might be using the next four or five training sessions, so over a week or 10 days as your chronic load. Um, so your chronic load is the load that you have put through your body or your training stress over a period of time. Um, in most team sports, what we tend to do is use one week of data as the acute training load or the recent training load. And we tend to use four weeks, but it's not uncommon for some sports to use three um, as the chronic training load, so the training load over a period of time. So what we want to do is we want to develop a ratio by dividing the acute load by the chronic load. Now, what the chronic load, so again, think back, chronic load is the load we put through our body over, in this case, a four-week 
training block. So we're going to think of the chronic load as our fitness. That's the fitness that we've built up over the last month. And we're going to look at the acute load as our relative fatigue or in some cases lack of. So the acute load is what we've done in this past week relative to what we've done over the month before. So a simple way to look at it is that if your acute load, the, what we've done in the last week is less than the chronic load, we're probably in a state of fitness because we're ticking along and we've done a high uh, load of training over a month and we've just had a week that's been slightly lower than the month before. So if we took, for example, let's say a person had 1,000 units of acute load over the past week using the calculations we, we used before of extrinsic load times intrinsic load. And if that person had 1,200 units of average chronic load over the four weeks before, if we divide 1,000 units of acute load by... 1200 units of chronic load that brings us up with a ratio of 0.83 so this is going to bring us up with a ratio less than one and we'll come back to ratios in a sec so if the acute load is greater than the chronic load then we consider this in a state of fatigue because we've done more in the last week than we have in the month before it so again, let's swap those figures from before around and say that if you have just done 1,200 units of acute load in the last week, but your average chronic load over the four weeks before was 1,000 units, if we divide 1,200 acute load by the 1,000 chronic load, we come up with a figure of 1.2, so the ratio is greater than 1. Let's give a really simple example of a runner. So let's say you've done, we're going to keep this really simple so that you can understand it at your end without the figures in front of you. But let's say you've done four weeks of running 10 kilometers, three times a week, and each run has been at a rate of perceived exertion of seven. So let's break it down to a week. You've done one run, at 10 kilometers, at a rate of perceived exertion of 7, so one run times 10k times an RPE of 7 is 70 units of load. Now you've done that three times in the week, so three lots of 70 is 210 units of load per week. Now if you have done exactly the same training program at exactly the same intensity over four weeks then obviously your four week average is still going to be 210 units per week because you've done exactly the same 210 for, for four weeks so if in week five so we now move into what we're going to use as the acute workload uh, week you decide that you're going to get fitter you're going to do one run at 10 kilometers but you're going to do it at an RPE or rate of perceived exertion of 9. So you're going to do a little bit harder or, or faster. So that's 90 units. You're then going to do a longer run. So you do a run of 15 kilometres at an RPE of 7, and that's 105 units. 
You then do the same run that you've done for the last four weeks, which is one run, 10 kilometres, RPE of seven. So that's 70 units. And then you decide, because you're trying to get a little bit fitter, that you're going to add a recovery run in. Six kilometres, an RPE of five, so it's not that hard. And that's that's equivalent to 30 units of load. So that sounds like a pretty reasonable increase in load. So you've gone from three... 10 kilometer runs at, at an RPE of seven to one 10 kilometer at nine, one 15 kilometer run at a rate of seven, one run of 10 kilometers at a rate of seven, and, and then your recovery run. So this brings us to a total weekly load of 295. So I've just added up all of those units I've just been through. And what we need to do is we need to divide that by the chronic workload, which was 210. So 295 divided by 210 comes up with a figure of 1.4. Now, again, we'll come back to that in a sec, because I just want to give you a, an example of how calculating these loads can be so good in giving you an, an indication of, of, of how your training is going. But we're going to compare that 1.4 to a runner returning from a week off due to injury. So with this runner, let's take uh, one week of 210 units of load, so the same as the runner before. But this runner starts to get a little bit sore. So week two, they're going to drop off a little bit and they're going to have a week at 180 units of load. And then they're a little bit sore, so they're going to have their next week where they drop off to 120 units of load. And then they decide to see the physio, they have a week off where they do nothing. So with this example, the person's had 210 units plus the 180 plus the 120 plus a week of zero. So that gives them a chronic workload of 630. We divide that by four weeks and we come up with a chronic workload of 127 and a half. Now, week five, which is their first week back, first week after they've seen the physio or first week after they've had a week off, they feel great and they think, good, my pain is gone, I'm fresh, I'm going to get back to where I was just a few weeks ago and I'm going to do 210 units again. So I'm going to do my three 10k runs at an RPE of seven. So what this does is their acute workload is 210 their chronic workload if you remember back to the example is 127 and a half so if we divide 210 by 127 and a half we come up with a figure of 1.6 so what do these ratios mean the acute chronic work rate ratios the research tells us has a sweet spot of about 0.8 to 1.3, where the risk of injury is at its lowest. Now, lowest risk doesn't mean you're not going to get injured, um, and nor so does highest risk mean you're going to get injured. But what this 0.8 to 1.3 tells us is that there is a sweet spot where uh, injury risk is lowest. And it's also been shown in, in the studies that have been done in cricket, uh, Australian rules footy and rugby league, that a ratio greater than 1.5 does represent a danger zone. So if we go back to the previous two examples, we had a runner with a really good foundation or fitness that decided to have 
what on paper seemed to be quite a bigger week, NADA ratio 1.4, which is only just a fraction outside that 0.8 to 1.3 sweet spot. But then you had a runner that had slightly reduced their running over a few weeks and then had a week off to freshen up and have their treatment and let their pain settle and then come back to a load that didn't seem too dramatic. But their ratio was actually 1.6. And this is where these ratios are great because on paper it would have been easy to think that the person that was doing the steady continuous loads and then had a big week was actually at more injury risk than the person that had slightly reduced their training, had a week off, had a physio session and come back. But we've seen using these acute chronic workload ratios that that it's actually that person that's had the rest that comes back with the ratio at 1.6 that actually is, is the greater risk. So... Imagine if you're coming back from six weeks in a boot or four weeks in a sling. You know what what your ratios then are going to be like if you're coming back and expecting to be able to return to training and and to turn and return to loads pretty quickly. So what the acute chronic workload ratio does is gives you a way to track the loads that you're performing right now compared to the loads that you have prepared your body for. So the ideal training is to maintain a training sweet spot that maximizes your performance. Now that means loads need to be pretty high, whilst at the same time we're avoiding the negative effects of training, which can be under or over training. So your your, your floor probably needs to be somewhere in that sweet spot phase. Um we look at sports like swimming and running and, and it's found that higher training volume and intensity does improve performance, but there's also a higher incidence of injury and illness when the training loads are, are higher. So higher absolute training loads are associated with greater injury risk, but they're also associated with greater performance levels. So that's why we need a system to ensure that we're not only getting to high loads, but we're doing it systematically and safely. Um, And hopefully by going through the definition of load management and the acute chronic workload ratios, you, you can see that you actually often do need a system to ensure that you're actually training high and that your floor is at a reasonable level. Um, but at the same time is that you are managing injury risk. So if we come back to now a summary um, and we look at, again, this is stuff that Tim Gabbett has done and, and produced. So the next five points, Tim produced a paper called Debunking the Myths About Training, Injury and Performance. And I'll go through those. Um, so the number one myth was that load explains all injuries. Um, And hopefully we can see now that there's many different factors that affect performance and injury risk. And I didn't go through before, but it's not just load. It's things like stress. It's your health. uh, It's sleep. Like sleep is is a massive issue in its own right. And you may have all of your loads near to perfectly managed, 
but you are getting poor sleep or you've been stressed um, or you've got little time and that can be just as much a, 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 factor, a factor on injury risk as, as load itself and certainly coming into the to the latter stage of the school year which we've just had and, and the VCE students and again our our footballers that are trying to uh, many of them make a career in football and their training loads are high but they've got so much stress and they're not sleeping because of the stress of exams and they've got less time to fit training in and so it's not just load that explains our injury risk and it's not just load that we need to manage we actually need to put a lot of effort into into other life factors as well to make sure that we're getting optimal performance and and, and injury risk at at its minimum so there's a there's a multifactorial and complex interplay between training performance and and injury risk um, and back to the sleep, you know, we might cover this off uh, in a later podcast on sleep. It was shown that athletes who sleep less than eight hours per night have a 1.7 times greater risk of injury. So you know, sometimes we've got to be putting just as much time and effort into factors other than load as we do at, at, as load itself. So the number two myth is a thing called the 10% rule, explaining all all load increments. So uh, often we've worked off the theory that the training loads shouldn't exceed uh, 10% increase in any session or any week. Um, and look, this is not a bad guide to go by. Um, but we know that large weekly changes or spikes in load can increase injury risk. But you've got to look at this in correlation to the person's chronic loads because a person can have a spike in load, but if their chronic loads are reasonable, they may be able to sustain this spike quite well. Um, If a person has very low chronic load, um, let's say they're in the basement, then they are less likely to tolerate 10% 10% load as somebody who's in that lower load. Uh, they're not in the basement, but their floor's a little bit lower than usual, but they will have a certain degree of robustness that they can sustain more than 10% increase in load. And then we look at people that are close to the ceiling. So if you're getting close to game day or, or performance day and your training loads are very high, then you're also not quite as likely to tolerate a 10% increase in load. It might be a 1% or 2%. So again, whilst 10% sounds good and, and, and it can be a good guide, you need to correlate that back to what your training loads have been like recently um, to determine whether 10% actually is appropriate or, or whether you can do a, a little bit more or whether you may need to do a little bit less. So, myth number three, we must avoid spikes and troughs in training at all costs. And this comes about because we know that a rapid increase in workload and what we call spikes um, can increase injury risk. And we know that too little workload or troughs also increases injury risk. But think back to the multifactorial basis of injury. It's not just load. You can have a spike or you can have a trough, but it depends on what else is going 
on with that athlete or with yourself as to what your injury risk actually is. It actually doesn't just mean that because you've had an increase in workload or a spike, you you will have increased injury risk. Um, and in training, I know a lot of coaches and, and sports trainers will actually use things called shock blocks, which are really quite intense short periods of training which have been shown to actually improve performance and and improve our physiological adaptations but they're done really sensibly and they're done on on good chronic workload basis because that person is is more able to sustain the the shock block or or the spike in training and likewise a trough you know you can think of a trough like tapering you know you might need to well you often do need to unload prior to an event or or prior to a race to achieve greater performance um, so you know spikes and troughs can happen and will happen and often do need to happen um, you don't need to avoid them at all costs you just need to pay attention to what is happening uh, with factors other than load um, if you're going to look at, at, at what that spike or trough may do to your injury risk so myth number four, that 1.5 or a ratio of 1.5 is the magic acute chronic workload ratio. Um, we said before that studies have shown that a likelihood uh, of injury is increased with, with an acute chronic workload ratio above 1.5. But as we've just been through, no single training variable can predict injury. You know, what do they stress? Are they tired? Are they busy fitting training in between work there's so many other things other than just the the ratio that go into injury risk and you've also got to keep in mind if we think back to the sweet spot the 0.8 to the 1.3 on 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 our acute chronic graph where our injury risk is lowest injury risk doesn't correlate exactly to injury rate so just because a ratio of 1.5 increases our injury risk that doesn't mean that you will get injured just means that you need to be wary of all other factors around and your training loads over the next week to make sure that you don't get injured if you have an acute chronic workload ratio of two you may not get injured as long as your training program uh, knows where you're at, has prepared for it, and you do, you're, you're covering off all that other multifactorial basis that, that goes with your health and fitness. So myth number five, um, it's not all about the ratio, or the myth is, is that it is all about the ratio, and we're saying to you that it's not all about the ratio. The ratio is important. Uh, there's a study that found that in Australian rules football, if you have a ratio, acute chronic workload ratio greater than two, you've got 11 times the injury risk. Now that sounds scary and that's why many people will deload or underload or or um, detrain, you know, thinking, gee, I've got 11 times the injury risk if I've got a ratio of two. Well, that that that's not right. What was overlooked was the chronic load. How prepared was that player to sustain a spike in their load? And it's actually been shown in studies too that players with a high chronic workload have a five-fold lower injury risk. So if you've got higher chronic loads and you have an acute load 
of greater than two, well, you've almost protected yourself against getting injured to a large degree. So high training loads actually are protective. They develop a resilience. They develop a tolerance of our body to load. And it increases our physical qualities, the strength, the speed, the aerobic capacity that protects us against injury. So it's been a little bit of a long podcast. Um, What would I say in a final summary? Well, I can't finish up without referencing Tim Gabbard again and, and thanking him for the data that I've been able to present to you today. Um, but here we go with here's your here's your take home messages. Um, number one, there is a positive relationship between training loads and injury. Next, a rapid increase in workload and low chronic workloads are associated with a greater injury risk. An acute chronic workload ratio of one point five increases your injury risk but remember that this doesn't equate to injury rate training has a protective effect against injury high chronic workloads can and do decrease the risk of injury as long as those loads are achieved safely so one of the goals of training should be to improve your ability to tolerate training load. And in doing this, you may actually shift your danger zone out to 1.7 or 2 on the acute chronic workload ratio. So by training harder, you're actually developing a resilience and your risky zone actually gets pushed out further. Next, Try to minimise your week-to-week training changes in load. So try and have a systematic approach. And, and as I said, spikes and troughs will occur, but, but the more you can increase your floor and do it safely and systematically, the, the less risk you'll have. Um, ensure a minimum training load is maintained for as long as you possibly can. Avoid the inconsistent loading patterns. And finally, training harder might actually be training smarter. So the last couple of things, there was a great quote from a guy called Vern Gambetta. Now, Vern's an internationally recognized expert in training and and conditioning, and he's dealt with a number of world-class athletes and teams of Major League Soccer, U.S. Men's World Soccer Team, the Chicago White Sox. He's been Director of Athletic Development of the New York Metz is he's authored a number of books and done a number of patients and he makes this great statement we need to be informed by science and impose training loads that are realistic to develop robust resilient athletes who thrive in competition you will never be able to perform above your level of training but that is what we are currently expecting our athletes to do week after week there must be progressive overload that exceeds game demands in small doses. So what a great quote. He's literally just saying that what we are doing in many cases is expecting our players and athletes to come out on game day and perform at a level above which they are training. 
Now, he is saying that you will never be able to perform above your level of training. So we've got to get better and we've got to get smarter at our training loads. And I've spoken about Tim so much that it's probably apt that I finish off uh, with with a quote from Tim. It's simple and it sums it all up. And he says, athletes need to load to withstand load. So hopefully as you all head into your Christmas break, um, you're planning on coming back to your sport fresh, this might get you to think about the importance of maintaining some form of a, of a chronic fitness base and, and just think back to the, the ceiling, the floor and the basement. If you're going to have a little bit of time off or a little bit of downtime, don't let your floor drop to the basement. Keep your floor up and, and the closer it is towards your ceiling, then, then the less time you need to get back to your peak performance. And hopefully after this, when you hear the term load management in the future, you're not just automatically turning to a reduction in your training load. So um, hope it hasn't been too heavy for you. Um, I hope you've got something out of it and look forward to bringing you lots more in the next podcast. Thanks.